Welcome back to the Queer Q podcast. I'm Nick Austin, pronouns he, they, and I'm here with the editor-in-chief of The Advocate, Tracy Gilchrist. Tracy, thank you so much for being with me here today. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Nick, and I should say that my pronouns are she, her. Thank you. And I wanted to go ahead and start off with one very complex question. And it's going to help us with the inaugural structure change to our interviews. So no pressure at all to you, Tracy. <laughs> okay. And um, I just wanted to know if you're ready, we can go ahead and start. And that question is, what is our duty to our queer community when reporting news as well as working in editorial? Well, I, I think the first duty is really, you know, if you're reporting uh, for LGBTQ plus media, I think you're already doing a good thing uh, for the most part by covering marginalized folks, right? Uh, I would say the biggest duty really is to be accurate, to avoid clickbait, um, avoid sensationalizing things just for the sake of traffic or attention. Um, I, mean, I think there are ways to get good traffic without having to do that, but not everyone does. Um, and then I think that the most important thing uh, and something that I've tried to continually learn, you know, I'm a cisgender white lesbian. Um, so, you know, 20 years ago when I got into uh, LGBTQ plus media at a very entry level, you know, I was kind of the center, right? So, you know, one of the centers. So I really have had to just pay attention to everyone else around me and ensure that uh, if I don't represent an identity, that I'm listening to those who do represent it, that I'm talking to those people, that I'm elevating their voices in an authentic way. If I'm writing a story about someone who has an identity that is not one that I share, that I'm being respectful and really just, um, I, I would say just listening is the biggest piece of that and interpreting someone's story in the most respectful and, um, you know, organic way possible. Uh, so to me, that's, those are the most important things. And then well, those are kind of general, right? Uh, in terms of, you know, it depends on what you cover. If we, so if you're the advocate, which is widely has been the paper of record for the LGBTQ plus community, then we have a responsibility to cover policy, to cover sometimes the kinds of things that may not grab headlines but that they need to be on the record. Uh, so we cover those things uh, as well. So I don't know. Well, that is a great answer. And I think that we have a lot that we can definitely unpack with that because these are three very important aspects to doing good by the LGBTQ plus community as journalists and working in media. And the first thing that you mentioned is being able to tell a very honest and authentic story without sensationalizing the topic. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that as we are continuously going through the media landscape and watching it evolve, that 
it becomes a lot harder to not sensationalize news because of how dramatic things are going on in the world. There's so many things that feel so absurd that it's hard to withhold bias, even though that is one of the most important parts of reporting news. Mm -hmm. And so I think with all of the news sources that we have out here, it can be hard also to one, verify the news if it is sensational, and two, if it warrants the type of effort, um, the type of leaning towards um, sensationalism. And I think it's really important for people to understand how to avoid that. And so I'm really curious, you know, just throughout your history working in editorial, how is it that you've been able to navigate this new media landscape where news is becoming more biased and more sensational? Yeah, I mean, it's it's not easy. Um, you know, we sometimes we look at news stories and at this point, those of us who are on the advocate digital side, especially, we've been with the company for, I'm, I've been with this company for 12 years. Uh, so I've been tangential to the advocate, uh, even if I wasn't, if I weren't working directly for it. And then we have uh, Neil who runs digital and he's been with the company, I gosh, I don't even know. I, I don't want to age him, but it's been it's longer than I've been there. And then our copy editor, who does a lot of politics and religion, she's been with the advocate, oh God, 20, 30, 25 years or more. So we have this kind of ability where we know our audience, the built-in audience, and we can kind of look at a story and say, well, oh, that's gonna do really well traffic-wise, or that will do well because it's an outrage story or that's going to do really well on Twitter with this group of fans, but on Facebook, they're going to eviscerate, um, you know, something like we we're really able to kind of just have a pretty good sense of what, where these stories are going to land. So that's kind of helpful. Um, you know, I, I just really make it a point to not gossip that's my thing if someone you know there's there are a lot of times where fans go wild like it hasn't doesn't happen so much anymore it happened recently and i can't remember who it was um but you know it would be like two women out in a club and they're hanging all over each other or maybe steal a kiss or something and you don't know maybe they're just drunk and having a good time or whatever or maybe there is something there um so I've never been that kind of person who does those headlines like, what about so-and-so? Like, you know, are they a couple? Or I, those are the kinds of things that we absolutely don't peddle and traffic in at the advocate. Um, as much as we might like to surmise or, you know, wish that so-and-so were with so-and-so. Uh, so we avoid those sorts of uh, conjecture and gossip posts where you can do them. You can make them a question. Um, but mostly, I, I won't say we've never done that, but I try to avoid it to a degree until I have some kind of certainty about a story. Um, so that's, that's one thing. I, today we did cover Caitlyn Jenner um, being dead named at um, CPAC. 
the Republican uh, convention. And we did that not so much for sensation. I, we often, you know, when it comes to Caitlyn Jenner, so much of what she does is sensationalism. That's kind of who she is. But I mean, the idea of dead naming, no matter who someone is, is anathema, obviously. So we did cover that. I mean, really, these are the people she considers her peers who are damaging trans folks through um, legislation across the country. So we did cover that, but for those reasons, um, the hypocrisy of it all, uh, but we steered clear of sensationalizing it. So there are conversations we have sometimes. How do you approach this? How do we respectfully approach it? So. Well, you know, I definitely applaud that specific angle when reporting on Caitlyn Jenner because that, in my opinion, also is the best way to cover that because even though um, certain people may not agree with her politics and um, the way that she presents herself and she puts herself out there for um, getting that type of media traction that can be very sensational or opportunistic, it's very important that she is a queer person, she is a trans person, and her identity cannot be used as a weapon against her. And that is something that we have to hold people accountable for, for their actions against someone, even if we don't necessarily agree with what they're saying, because at the end of the day, this is an issue that transcends someone like Caitlyn Jenner. You know, what we focus on so much mm -hmm. in our news coverage is on a lot of the anti-trans legislation that's being pushed through throughout the country mm -hmm. and other anti-LGBTQ bills. And so that is a huge focus that we have to give attention to. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just from your perspective, how do you feel that um, queer publications as well as non-specifically queer publications have covered a lot of the issues that have faced specifically the trans community with these bills and the LGBTQ plus community as a whole when it comes to these issues? Well, I, this, this question might be a little harder for me to answer because I very much kind of pay attention to, to the policy and then we form our stories. So I'm not always digging into other um, queer news sites to see what they're doing around something. Media in general needs to be better about how they cover trans issues. Um, and especially, I mean, and I, I think people, I think in some ways it is getting better, um, but you know, we consider ourselves or have always tried to consider ourselves an organization that should be leading the conversation. So we're talking with organizations about identity and then kind of taking it from there. We're going to trans folks or interviewing non-binary folks and, and chatting with them to really get a holistic view of what's happening as much as possible. We're a small team. So we can't do everything, uh, but you know, as much as possible, we try to do that. In terms of other outlets, I mean, I, as far as I know, um, you know, a place like them 
is really thoughtful. I mean, they're really ahead of the curve on everything. I think Autostraddle has always been doing things pretty right. Uh, so those are a couple that I can comment on, um, but I, I'm not looking at everything. Uh, I kind of, I look at what's happening. What have I been pitched? Uh, what's the legislation that's going on? And then what do we need to cover? And, you know, often we'll just go straight to sources. Um, you know, once the story is out, we will often, you know, hit up, I don't know, I can't even think of um, organizations at this point, but, you know, GLAD or HRC or politicians who are involved with certain legislation. So, you know, we have those connections where we're able to get quotes from folks and kind of try to get in on the ground floor as much as possible. And I think what I what I really loved about that answer is just this conversation of collaboration because you're right, you're you're working with writers, you're working with all these people pitching these stories. And like you mentioned earlier, when looking at how to be good for our community as um, a reporter working in editorial is being able to have so many different varied beliefs and backgrounds when it comes to reporting the news. And so you mentioned that you've learned so much from working with a diverse group of people that represents truly the full um, LGBTQ plus community. And I think it's something that where, you know, we talk about authentic representation we really focus on that when it comes to film, television, the people um, in front of and behind the camera, but we don't talk that much about it when it comes to news reporting and mm -hmm. editorial. Yeah. And I think it's something where we really need to be able to value having that type of, you know, very experiences in the room. And so, when did you see that being vital to the growth of the advocate as well as being one of the most important aspects when it comes to collaborating within our community? Well, you know, I think that it's always been vital. Um, you know, I, I think that over the years and the more people I meet, the more interns we've had who represent the breadth of identities. Um, you know, I just pay attention to what people are talking about and what is the next conversation and what is what we think is going to be important. We have to kind of, you know, I had a, the editor in chief uh, before me, two before me, uh, really made a pivot. I would say, God, what was he was he was there from 2011 to 2018, and he really made a hard pivot. Uh, I'd say around 2013 to being the go-to site for news about trans folks, and that was really thoughtful and important decision. And I don't, I wouldn't say that we were the first, but uh, we really were covering trans issues in such a massive way. You would go to the homepage and it would, that would be, I would say some days, 80% of what was being covered. And, you know, now we're shifting into, you know, really making sure that we're 
we're covering intersections of identities and also you know i think the conversation now is being as inclusive as possible around non-binary identity and getting the word out about that so i wouldn't say we made a hard shift i think we're just really flowing into that as you know as we're seeing more and more of it so it's really just um i think i lost the thread of the question but <laughs> no no um see that's what you know has been so inspiring about the advocate is everything happens so naturally when it comes to that pivot and focusing on what's truly vital in reporting for our community and focusing on those intersections you know there are so many news agencies that don't focus on that they're not looking at the nuances because we have better understanding from our community at what those intersections are you know the totem pole of queer identity and where people stand where their place is and that and so we really do have to lead the charge to lead other news organizations specifically non-queer ones specifically that you know need to lead from our example when it comes to being able to look at intersectionality and look at what is currently topical that really hasn't been covered. And that's what's so great is that The Advocate was really pushing for that when a lot of other queer publications weren't. So it's always inspiring to see that. And it's always inspiring to be able to hear that and to learn about that history. Um, yeah, you know, we do our best. As I said, we're, we're a small team. Uh, right now we're very small, but scrappy. And, you know, those of us who are with The Advocate have been there for the most part for quite a while. And so we we do as the best job that we can and we do miss things. We're not gonna get everything. We just don't physically have the ability to do that. But we really try to highlight what we think is the most important, next important conversation that's going to happen. Yeah. And that is what is important is, you know, putting in that effort and really you know, at least if it can't be covered, if things are missed, then at least then that leaves the door open for someone else to be able to look at that and say, okay, we can fill that gap. Mm -hmm. um, and so speaking of how many people who have been a part of The Advocate for so long, mm -hmm. you know, I know that journalism has changed so much as we were talking about at you know, the, the jump of all of this is um, just how much it's changed when reporting and being able to verify sources. And so since you do work with such an established team that really knows um, journalistic integrity, being able to vet sources, what is your best advice for younger journalists, um, especially a lot of the very active Gen Z mm -hmm. um, people within our community who are reporting on the news. Um, what is your advice for ensuring that they are reporting the best that they can? Well, I would start with kind of steering clear a little bit of social media for one thing. I know it's a great tool, uh, but you know, there was, it's so interesting because we have this, you know, we do lighter posts at The Advocate as well. So there had been this story last week that came out where allegedly Legally Blonde's ending 
was super queer with Reese Witherspoon and Selma Blair's characters. This came from an actress who was doing an oral history for Legally Blonde. And then I guess it came out that the writer was like, no, that's not true. That's not what happened. So a lot of folks, you know, jumped on the bandwagon of the first story because, I mean, I would have loved to see a very super queer um, ending to that film. I mean, arguably it's a very queer movie anyway. Um, but, um, you know, one thing that I think needs to be avoided sometimes is looking at a story that's really taking off and trending and just kind of jumping on those bandwagons. Like we, we don't know. Those are, those are not necessarily the kinds of stories that um, you can really vet or do well, unless somebody like the writer of Legally Blonde comes out and says, no, that's not true. Um, so my advice at first would be try not to use social media as your sources. Um, one of my least favorite kinds of stories, but people tend to love them, are um, this happened on Twitter. And so now it's a story. <laughs> you know, and often if it's trending on Twitter, it will do well, but I just like, oh my god sometimes i roll my eyes at these stories and you have to unravel a twitter thread and try to find out who said what and you know um so i would if i were just starting out really try to stick to things that you can verify um by doing interviews with people and you know if you can't get the truth of a story because you just don't have that access then maybe that story is not for you to cover we can't cover everything so you know if there is a way you can cover stories that are big and breaking um, sometimes they're verified on cnn or nbc or you know whatever but you just have to be sure that you're checking your sources it's like, you know, all the fake news that went around. It, it's all over. It's not just QAnon. There's a lot of fake news all over the place. So it really is just a matter of digging through. If you want to write a Twitter story, make sure you dig through that thread and get to the bottom of it. Uh, and then maybe even if it's something that is important and you know, potentially has a danger element to it, you know, in terms of what it's saying about someone, um, you know, maybe DM the person, but really check in. That's what I think. I don't think that at this point we should not be repeating uh, the mistakes that have been made over the past five, six years in regard to, you know, mostly politics um, and the kind of fake news that's gone around you know, on both sides of the spectrum. So um, mostly conservative, but um, but we shouldn't be regurgitating things that are unverified. So verify your sources. If you can't verify your sources, don't spread the rumor. That would be my, my uh, suggestion. Well, thank you. I know that there's so many people who are growing up in social media that a lot of people, that's where they get their news. That is where they verify their sources. And it's something where, you know, that is the golden rule 
of journalism is to verify your sources, ensure that, you know, understanding if there's bias behind those sources yeah. and not looking specifically to Twitter to verify something. And mm -hmm. I think that's something that a lot of young people who want to get into reporting the news, reporting on things, having some form of commentary can be very prone to. And I think it's important with everything happening in watershed moments that we just need to take a step back, verify and ensure what we're reporting is accurate. And I think really the biggest issue when reporting on queer news is being able to verify it through non-biased sources, especially mm -hmm. if mainstream media is not picking up on those stories and verifying them mm -hmm. themselves. And it really falls on us working in queer editorial to be able to find a way around that and really have that grit to be able to follow something and ensure that it's accurate. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I think you can start at social media. If you see something's trending on Twitter, I think it's fine to get a kernel of an idea and then, but you've got to follow up on it. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And speaking of Legally Blonde, um, you know, moving into a little bit more fun territory, getting into film. <laughs> I you know I, you you hit me with the hardcore. I'm like, no, yeah. <laughs> you, so, you lured me here with the uh, <laughs> promise of pop culture discussion. And <laughs> I know. And uh, so we will finally get to the fun part. And no, it's uh, been it's been a pleasure so far. But yes. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Um, same to you, of course. And we had a brief conversation about Carol, and I know you're a major fan of Carol, I'm a major fan of Carol, and I really wanted to know, you know, what about that film, you know, really spoke to you? What was it that was so, um, that imparted so much on you? Oh, hey, that's a really big question for me. Um, so when I came out in the mid to late 80s, I had no representation. There was no one who looked at, looked like me on television for sure. Um, or there was nothing that looked like something I wanted for my life. The closest I had, I give a lecture on uh, film and TV, um, the history of film and television for LGBTQ plus people. It's called Pandora's Box to Pose, if I'm plugging it. Um, so I give this lecture and I kind of start with a little background about who I am. And I show a picture of me in the eighties with my blonde kind of shaved head. And, um, and then I show a picture of Laverne and Shirley, which when I was a kid, they were two women who were best friends and loved each other and they shared a bedroom. I mean, they were roommates, but they also shared a bedroom because it was a, a one bedroom. And that was the closest thing I had to something I mean, I couldn't articulate it, but it was the closest thing to something that I maybe wanted for my life. So I really grew up with nothing. I think, you know, I may have seen a snippet of personal best when I was a kid, like, you know, a couple early movies, but really nothing. So on one hand, um, the thing about Carol that really appeals to me is it was written in 1952 by Patricia Highsmith who's a queer woman, uh, you're writing under a pseudonym, but the fact that this book got made or, you know, and it, it was not 
they made it out to be pulp fiction, but it was really elevated. It's an elevated, it's literature. Um, so I love that aspect of Carol that it was written then by a queer woman and there's no pathos in it. The beauty of Carol is that these women know exactly what they want. They struggle with how to get around society, but they know what they want. Like as much as in the film, Therese says, I don't know what I want. She knows what she wants from the minute she sees Carol in that toy department. Um, so I love that there's no pathos. Um, also, as a, I studied film, um, I'm a film buff. I studied critical film theory. Todd Haynes, uh, you know, new core cinema darling uh, is one of my favorite directors. Um, so I also just love the kind of film history that's embedded in that. It's a little bit melodrama, but mostly like noir, which actually really works with Patricia Highsmith. Because if you think about other novels that Highsmith wrote, like Strangers on a Train, the Ripley series, and, you know, um, what is it? Um, something about the owl. I can't think of the name of it. I've read so many of her books. Um, but they always have this threat of the menace, right? So there's this kind of underlying dark menace in all of her novels. And so the idea that Carol has these neo-noir um, kind of tropes, which, you know, it's in the framing, the lighting, the, um, the reflective surfaces are, are all very noir. Um, it really works because in, the, in Carol, in my estimation, the menace is being found out, right? The, the threat of what will happen. So I kind of really love that, it, you know, Todd Haynes ties that in. And then of course the performances are just unbelievable. Um, the other thing, and some people may think that I'm a little masochistic, uh, masochistic for saying so, but um, I'm so, I, I'm a little torn romantically, right? I'm so glad that we can be out more than we used to be able to um, without so much of the threat of, you know, being jailed or, you know, that we're more accepted. I do, I'm so happy for that progress, but a part of me misses back in the day when you would meet someone and it was a, well, is she or isn't she? And you're kind of holding your cards close to the vest and you know, you're not on an app swiping to see if there is an attraction. You really had to seek it out. And um, I guess I romanticized that to some degree. So I also love that about the period, you know, uh, in which Carol is filmed. I also think it's really one of the most beautiful beautifully filmed love stories, that scene where they leave Manhattan and um, drive to New Jersey and they're in the Lincoln Tunnel and the soundtrack kind of gets like muffled and the lighting is just like, I mean, it's just the feeling of falling in love. So anyway, that's, I will, that's it for now. <laughs> I know exactly what scene they're talking about. Like when they're going through the tunnel to mm -hmm. New Jersey, I, I love that scene too. Oh, it's so beautiful. And you know, Therese is just, you just get a, like a glint of Kate Blanchett's beautiful green eye. And then, you know, the fur coat or like the glove on the wheel. And it's just like these snippets. And I wrote an op-ed about it 
um, I guess when it came out about how Carol made me feel like I want to fall in love again. Um, and it reminded me of this girlfriend I had in the late nineties who I met, we were working at a Girl Scout camp and um, she was from England and she'd never been with a woman before, but um, you know, it was that thing where I was like, am I misreading this? Is it, you know, and I knew that I was crushing really hard. And so I would kind of look at her across the room and then avert my eyes so that she wouldn't think I was a weirdo and, you know, all of those things. So I kind of love the way that's filmed because it's, it's just like, kind of, you're looking out of the corner of your eye to see how it's, how it's going to land. And I don't know, it just, it was visceral, I think. Yeah. It is because it's, it's like this, um, trying to figure out desire you know, allowing mm -hmm. desire to yeah. take over and you feel it in that mm -hmm. scene where they're going through the tunnel to New Jersey and in the first scene where they see each other, you just see this way of them kind of inspecting each other and showing mm -hmm. their willingness to share desire towards one another and see. Mm -hmm. And I, I love that. I think that's what makes it such a visceral film is to be yeah. able to really see that portrayed and you just you spoke to my heart talking about tolerance <laughs> and new queer cinema because mm -hmm. like poison and safe and oh the Karen oh Pepper. my god far from heaven <gasps> oh far from heaven yes <laughs> just his entire filmography is incredible mm -hmm. or even i'm i'm not there yes. slightly expert that one borders on experimental i think but yeah. it's oh my god well he comes from i mean Poison has a little bit of that. So, yeah. So good. Answer than that too. I know. I know. I mean, unbelievable as Bob Dylan. <laughs> and it's just, yeah. you know, those same, those same themes, you know, are just explored throughout. So I really felt like Carol was a great culmination of that. You know, it has a happy ending. It's it does. not like that. I know. It's, you know, I, in my, mind they get to they're together that's it um you know uh so i love that i i don't need it to be spelled out for me um uh, but i think it has a hopeful ending and i oh god i just i think i've seen it 11 times now i saw it five times when it first came out and then i made myself wait and so now i watch it every year at christmas obviously <laughs> i do too i watch it every year for christmas it's one of my favorite queer holiday films um, yes i'll even watch it like outside of christmas um yeah, <laughs> it's it's a great movie and you know thank whatever for patricia highsmith because her what she's written has been incredible and i i can't wait for the new ripley series coming out with andrew scott you know, oh i didn't know that was happening oh yeah, they're, they're <gasps> a whole um it's gonna be on um i forget the network i probably shouldn't say anyways but they're um doing a mini series about all of the ripley novels and andrew scott's wow gonna be tom ripley. that's fantastic yeah, that is yeah. fantastic. I, I do want to say while we're still talking about Carol, I have to give a shout out, obviously, to Phyllis Nage, who wrote the script. She's lesbian. She was friends. She became friendly with Patricia Highsmith in the 80s. 
so her and then of course you know sandy powell's costumes are just yeah if it wasn't for phyllis uh, writing that then i really didn't like we loved Hunley's as a director but to really you know show female desire to be able yes. to really have that it was so important for how she wrote that screenplay based on the novel so yeah i i thought it was wonderful although I will say, you know, there are a lot of films that are directed and written by men, some of them gay. Uh, I'm, I'm not a hardcore, I'm such a film person that if you're framing and you're lighting it, if that captures me, then I'm, I'm in, I'm not always looking at the gender of the person behind the camera. So I'm not a hardcore anti-male gaze person <laughs> well no that's good because as a film student it's so important for us to evaluate it without having all mm -hmm. of these all of these things that we have to interrogate afterwards you know because yep. you know we we're basing you know our opinions on these films as the art and then as yep. soon as we get into some of the issues that you know are going to be very topical you know you can you know, I was very upset. I agree with you. And I, I have to say, I was really upset at the reception to Ammonite, which I thought was a gorgeous film. And Francis Lee is a lovely, lovely, humble, gay man. And from working class roots. And I just thought that that film said so much about women's work, the value of women's work and class. And I just, uh, it really upset me that it, I, a lot of what I saw online was male gaze, male gaze, male gaze. <laughs> I'm like, well, it can still be the male gaze if there's a woman behind the camera. <laughs> because you have to, well, you have to break down the tools that the patriarchy built. And, you know, the whole way that we make films was built by men. So unless you're going to remake movies like, like in the vein of Chantal Ackerman, which is not for everyone, uh, then you're kind of looking at the male gaze. <laughs> so. You know, I never really considered it that way. And I thought we were just going to have this very enlightening conversation about editorial and about news reporting, but thank you, because that was so insightful about um, understanding the film, because that makes sense. It's completely true. Well, you know, that's my opinion, and um, not everyone agrees with it, but, um, you know, um, you know, and, and here's the thing. I was an actor. I studied film. So when I... When I go to the advocate, I'm not, I'm not a news junkie. I'm not that hardcore news junkie. I very much, I, I think we need them, those people. Um, I'm very much still that person who does journalism through storytelling. And I'm so excited by everything that's out there. I mean, I watch, now I just don't wanna watch anything that doesn't have queer content. There's so much that we can watch now that it's a very rare movie or a television show that doesn't have any queer characters that I'll actually sit all the way through, no matter how good it is. It's really, it's gotten to that point for me. So everything comes back to storytelling for me. That's true. Um, mm -hmm. 
yeah, criticism as well as news reporting. There are a lot of things that we have to be aware of moving forward into the media landscape and being accountable for it. And mm -hmm. thank you for sharing that honest conversation with me about both film and editorial. And it's exciting to see you at the forefront of all of this, being a part of it. So thank you. Oh, of course. Thank, thank you for having me. I, um, you know, I, I'm honored to be in this position and, you know, I don't take it for granted at all. I, you know, there are a lot of great, really, really smart journalists out there. I feel very um, honored that I was elevated to this position. So, um, yeah, I'm happy to, happy to be a voice, you yeah, know. The media landscape is better for it. So, <laughs> thank you thank you again for speaking Hi. with me and can't wait for everyone to continue seeing what the advocate has been putting out there as an amazing voice when it comes to lgbtq plus news and entertainment mm -hmm. and we can't wait to see more from what she created